uh, have signed up, and that's just the first day. If you're a member of West Houston Bible Church, then you can take two courses, tuition-free. And if you register between now and Sunday, then um, your registration fee will be waived. So that would uh, be an encouragement. You can go to chafer.edu and look things up. Now, on Sunday, I strongly recommended and suggested to people that they go to a film, The Essential Church. I went to see it last night. I sent an email out about it, and you really need to see this. You need to be informed. We all need to be informed, and it is based on what happened in the COVID lockdowns, especially in Canada and California, as uh, government sought to shut down churches and tell them they could not meet a violation of separation of church and state and in america it's a violation of the first amendment in canada uh, it has the rich heritage within british law going back to the covenanters you'll learn history about the covenanters in scotland which is important i mean it is we're in a battle it's one thing to say that we're in a battle where we have been fought against for 60 or 70 years at least and we have not recognized it. So we are losing terribly in this culture. And people need to wake up and understand what the issues are. I'm reading a book right now by Erwin Lutzer, who's the uh, retired, I guess, uh, emeritus pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He's a Dallas Seminary THM and uh, THD and he's an excellent writer, and he's pretty good. He tends to be more Calvinistic than I am in a lot of areas, but that doesn't enter into this. He's written books. Uh, one is called um, uh, No Time to Be Silent, and the one that just came out is There's no time, It's No Time or No Place to Hide. And he, he has a solid biblical basis. His focus is to challenge Christians that in whatever sphere of life you're in, uh, you cannot escape the attack of the so-called woke crowd, which is nothing more than Marxism. They're bullies. They intimidate. They are very subtle because Satan is very subtle, and there are too many Christians who don't understand that they've already compromised their Judeo-Christian biblical worldview because they're not... um, alert enough to recognize what their companies are having them do. And we need to wake up. We are at war, and we need to take a stand. And that's what he's talking about. It's not going out and picketing or a lot of other activist things. It is basically that we need to understand, and when we are put in a position where we are, where our worldview based on the Bible is being challenged in the workplace, in the education, in the military, that we need to learn how to biblically take a stand. His understanding of Daniel is fantastic. And what you will learn about propaganda, which I'll mention later on in this lesson, is is really important in cultural Marxism, social justice. He just has a wonderful way of explaining things. So I strongly uh, encourage you to watch The Essential Church. It was only released for Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. There are According to their website, they're hoping they'll get it out to other other screens. And so it was limited. There were only about five places to see it in Houston. Several people who heard me announce it on Sunday went to see it and said, boy, that was really good to see. 
So it's important. We have to be informed. There's nothing that is more dangerous to this nation than an ignorant, uninformed electorate. And it's really hard to get truthfully informed because there's so much fake news. So anyway, that is the, the those are the announcements, and we'll get ready to, for our study. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So before we get started, let's bow our heads and have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you that you are a, our refuge, you are a strong tower, you are a fortress for us, you are our rock, that God with you plus one that's can defeat anybody. With you, nothing is impossible. We stand in a serious situation in this, not only in this nation, but in Western civilization and many of the countries around the world where there is a full bore attack on all of the divine institutions, an absolute attempt to restructure society according to pure creaturely, uh, creaturely standards and the rebellious creaturely standards of Satan. And so we know that this is a setup for the uh, end times, but we don't know how much longer that may be. It could be a hundred years before the rapture occurs, and things uh, could get much, much worse and as bad as they were before the flood. We have no idea how long it will be, but we need to stand firm. And the way to do that is to protect our thoughts with your word and to protect our children and our grandchildren by teaching them the truth and by teaching them your word. And so, Father, we need to be challenged to that, that we need to all step up to that plate. So, Father, we pray that by studying in this interlock series that that will be part of uh, the response to strengthen us, strengthen our families, that we're doing all we can do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we've been going through our timeline. This is part three. If I get through it, we'll start some in lesson three, part one. Uh, the pagan view of origins is the topic of chapter two. We didn't get to everything last time. I was talking to the Quacks yesterday. We had a lovely two-hour conversation on Zoom, got to hear their whole uh, life story, 
how they got into writing this material, and I encouraged them. I said, this needs to be, you need to do a video of this and put it up on, on the website so people understand it. It's a great encouragement and a great testimony to the fact that you've got two people who've never been to seminary. They have been theologically trained by their uh, some of the work that they did there, but a lot of their own reading and their own studying, uh, work they did with Good Seed Ministry and John Cross, where they came in contact with Charlie Clough and his framework series, and then also in contact with uh, me and what we're teaching and learning here at West Houston Bible Church. And it's um, uh, that has fed it. They're doing a series now on the spiritual life based on what I've taught. So that's just another thing on my plate to go in and read and edit and correct what they're doing. But it's just tremendous. They make make everything I do better. I mean, everybody needs that. It's just wonderful. Uh, but we need to pray for them because anybody who's doing that kind of work is under under assault. So I just talked through different things and different uh, things that we're doing. So it's just real, real encouraging. So what we've done here is this timeline, break it down, 11 Old Testament events and 8 New Testament events. And so we've got these 19 events. And so this is basically what we see uh, in the whole Bible. And everything hangs on these events. So let's all stand up and keep going through it until we all get it down. You ought to be thinking about it, dreaming about it, um, all of those things. And we'll get some kids in here next time to help us a little more. So you ready? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, then you have the call of Abraham, then you have the Exodus, and then the Ten Commandments, the uh, prologue to the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and then you have the conquest. After the conquest, then God finally provides a king, and then it splits into two kingdoms, and then there will be the exile where both kingdoms will be taken out of the land, and then God will bring them back. Now, that's the that's the um, Old Testament. New Testament is fulfillment of prophecy, and you have the birth of the Messiah, and then he will go to the cross where he will be crucified, he will be buried on the third day, he rises from the dead, and then he will ascend to heaven 40 days later, and 10 days after that, he sends the Holy Spirit, and that is the beginning of the church. And the church age will end when Christ comes and meets us in the clouds and takes us to heaven. Seven years later, after the tribulation, he will return to the earth, and he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, there's the great white throne judgment, and then God will create the new heavens and the new earth. Great. Good job. Hope you can keep remembering all of that. So we have these uh, coat hooks, these coat pegs for these events, these 19 events, and this is how we're looking at this. So we've gone through, we've looked at the creation, we're looking at the fall, and at the creation we saw three key things, the creator-creature distinction, and then we have the divine institutions, which are um, uh, uh, individual responsible uh, choice, responsible choice, and then marriage, then family. Those three before the fall, and then the fall. So that's that's what we cover there. Now in this chart, 
This is just a reminder of what we have done in the second lesson. On the left side, you have the headings for the interlocked material. The spirit beings are introduced. These are the angels. We know they were created before the earth, for they sang for joy. All of the sons of God sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. And then one of the angels, who was a cherub, the highest order of angels, who is the closest to God, whose name was Shining Star, literally in the Hebrew, and then he becomes arrogant, and you have sin amongst the angels, and there's a revolt, and a third of the angels will follow him. Now, that's the outline for the older kids. So older kids are a little more sophisticated. They can engage in more abstract thought, things of that nature. Uh, but the right side is when with the younger children. So you can teach them about angels. You can teach them about the problem with the shining star. He sins, so he exercises his volition or his free will to sin against God, to disobey God. And so we teach the kids. They can understand this. You either have a, in your soul, you have a yes button and a no button. And when you are obedient to your parents, that's your yes button. And when you're disobedient, that's your no button. When you're uh, obedient to your to God, that's your yes button. When you're disobedient, that's your no button. And so from an early age, using those kinds of tools to teach your kids individual responsibility and also consequences for individual uh, decisions. And so what happened was that uh, Satan said no to God, and then after God created uh, the earth as we know it, uh, there's trouble in the Garden of Eden. And uh, this is the origin, as we looked at last time, of the pagan views of how things came to be, which, as we'll see, is a violation of the creator-creature distinction. We didn't get to the last part, which is what this pagan uh, worldview looks like today. It's been dressed up in scientific, pseudo-scientific terminology. And uh, for the little kids, they just express that more simply as... Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie. They thought Satan was more truthful than God. And so that takes us through uh, that outline. So the focus of our very first lesson was on God's creation and the three divine institutions. Lesson two focuses on the wrong views of creation. And we studied the spirit beings, shining stars, fall, uh, the angelic rebellion, and then the deception of Adam and Eve. That was last week. And so Lesson 2.2 helps us understand why are there so many wrong views today, where they came from. They came from who? What's his name? Satan. Satan. They all originate there in the Garden of Eden with Satan. And then this third part focuses on how, what this pagan worldview uh, looks like uh, today, one of the most important things that we study conceptually is this understanding of a creator creature distinction that so often people get involved in trying to understand certain things, and part of the problem is that we have to recognize that the Creator, who is infinite in all of his attributes, he is unique in all of his attributes so that we can only understand him to some degree. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. 
He is far beyond our comprehension. We can understand true things about him, but we cannot understand him fully or exhaustively and never will. So he is the infinite personal creator God. That's the first level at the top. And we are creatures. And the problem of sin is that the creatures wanted to become like the creator. Satan wanted to be like God. And that was his uh, enticement to Eve, that if she ate of the fruit, she would be like God. We saw that the divine institutions of responsible choice, marriage was to be between one man and one woman, and then the family was to be the training ground, the teaching ground, the education system for future generations. So we could summarize the biblical worldview with three things. First of all, the creator-creature distinction. God is the creator, and he is totally different, unique, one of a kind from all his creatures. There is only one God, and he is separate from man. And man is separate from the creation, from the natural creation, so that man is not an animal and man is not a God. Man is in the image and likeness of God in order to be able to rule and reign over God's creation. That would distinguish him from the angels because they did not do that. God is a personal God, and a and he is sovereign. He is the ruler of his universe and the one who makes the rules. And third, he is the ultimate authority. He is the one who is always right. So we are to obey him. Uh, we saw that in the Genesis account, Yahweh God is the ultimate authority. And second, that Yahweh God determines right and wrong. The creature does not. And Yahweh God created human beings in a specific way. So he designed our bodies to be the way they are for specific reasons related to our purpose. He created our minds to be the way they are as a home for our soul and how they interact together. And to this day, there is no scientist, there is no laboratory that can, or philosopher who can understand how an immaterial soul can control a miracle, a, a material brain, a physical brain. In fact, what you have today is in the pagan worldview is that everything is material, there's nothing that's immaterial, and everything is determined by just your your chemistry and your DNA. It's it's fatalism and it denies the first divine institution, which is uh, individual responsibility based on freedom of choice. So Satan's attack plan was, first of all, to diminish Yahweh God by calling him only Elohim, only God. Not You don't have the capital L-O-R-D, or sometimes you'll see a capital G-O-D, and that would indicate Yahweh is the uh, Hebrew there. And so this was just a sneaky way, a very subtle way to attack the nature of God. He's not really different from the other angels. And we went through a lot of verses last time showing that often the angels are also referred to by this word Elohim. And so when he comes to Eve and he refers to, he says, has Elohim said, and his enticement is for her to think that she can be uh, at the same level of God, she can level up on the continuity of being, she can be like God, 
um, he's reducing God to just the level of all the other angels. There's nothing really that special about him, and you can be like him also. So in the pagan worldview, though, it begins, there's only chaos and chance. And it's out of this chaos that the gods and goddesses pop. So you go back, you read Babylonian creation myths, origin myths, you read Roman, Greek, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, you, you come over and you read origin myths among the um, Aztecs, among the Incas, among various uh, aboriginal tribes in North America, among the uh, various Mongolian tribes in Asia. They all have some sort of remnant ideas, but they all start with something exists. Matter is always there, and it's not in a formed shape Yet And then something happens and outsprings all these gods and goddesses. In Satan's fall, he wanted to be like the creator, and so that's his issue. He is in rebellion against God. So you have this original chaos in the pagan view where there's no distinction or difference between gods and goddesses and man and a rock. They're all part of the same continuum, all participating in something called just existence, what gives existence to, th- to things. And so the universe begins in a stage of chaos. And I don't know, I, I somebody sent me a video the other day of electric vehicles that had collided that were just exploding and exploding and exploding and parts of vehicles and all kinds of metal was flying everywhere and huge fireballs going up into the air. And I looked at that, and the first thing that popped in my mind is what you have here is order that is being blown up. Can can explosions ever produce order? And you go out and blow things up and produce order. Yet that's what the Big Bang Theory says, is that there's a huge explosion and out of it comes increased order. But there is no evidence of that ever happening in anything like that. So pagan worldview starts starts with chaos, out pops the gods and goddesses. And the thing about them is that they both they all have evil characteristics. They have good characteristics and they have evil characteristics. And so that tells you that in a pagan worldview, good and evil are what? First of all, they're always there. They always will be. They've always been there. Evil then is normal. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody said, well, I'm so mad at God because he just lets all this, you know, he lets all this evil happen. How can you have a good God with, and have all this evil? And I have said for years, the way to handle that is say, well, that's fine. I'll answer that in a minute. But you tell me this. If you live in a world that is operating on on chaos and chance, and then slowly over time, order develops out of the chaos, um, evil has always been there. In fact, evil is the normative means by which evolution occurs according to your view. In evolution, the key principle is survival of the fittest. What does survival mean? It means some creatures survive, but all the other creatures die. So to get survival, you have to have death. 
death is the way means of advancement in the evolutionary scheme. Death is not only normative, normative it's necessary in order for advancement to occur. So why are you complaining about death and sickness and disease and famine and all of these other things? In your view, that's necessary for there to be be evolution. So anyway, back to what I'm saying. Um, in Satan's attack plan, his appeal to Eve was to make her think that she was in a position to evaluate the claims of God and the claims of Satan. God said... The day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And then a couple of days later, this serpent comes along, beautiful serpent, attractive, uh, has a way with words and, and says, did God really say that? And he's questioning, is, is God really right? And instantly, by asking that question, he's putting her in a position to decide whether God is right or not. Now, what should she have done? She said, yes, that's what God said, and he's always right. But what Satan does is he puts her in a position, she falls for the trap, and so she's, got, she's going to treat these two claims. When Satan says, you, sh- you won't die, God says you will die. Now she's got to decide who's telling the truth. And she walks right into that trap and she's making herself above God because she's going to evaluate God. That's the essence of sin. Every time we sin, we are saying, well, God said this isn't right. And I think he's a liar because I think it is right. And we don't make it quite that bold in front of us, but, but that's what we're saying. God is lying to us. So we summarize the pagan worldview as continuity of being. There's a sliding scale. So everything's on that same line from the gods to the rocks. And that there's just something that gives us existence. And um, plants have more of that than rocks. But they, they, they're on the same scale, so they can slide up and down this scale. And animals have more of it than plants. Humans have more of it than animals. Angels have more of it than humans, and gods have more of it uh, than, um, the, than the others. But they all came out of this chaos. So this is called continuity of being, that you can move up or down this scale. You can go in to be reincarnated as, a, as, a, uh, as an insect or as uh, an amoeba or something. And if you've been good, maybe you'll move up the scale. Second thing as part of this, the pagan worldview is that ultimate reality is controlled by impersonal fate. It's impersonal. That means it really doesn't have an intellect because intellect and volition are all part of, some, of personhood. And so it's impersonal fate and random chance. And then ultimate authority is just the self. It's all about the individual. So when we contrast and compare the biblical worldview on the left with the pagan worldview, the biblical worldview says there's a creator-creature distinction. 
The pagan worldview says, no, there's a continuity of being. We're all part of the same stuff so we can level up or level down. The biblical worldview says there's a personal, infinite, sovereign creator God. The pagan worldview says, no, there's nothing out there, just all impersonal fate and chance. Well, if it's all ultimate reality is impersonal faith, how did personhood ever come along? And then third, the ultimate authority is God in the biblical worldview, and in the pagan worldview, the ultimate authority is just the self. So Satan was promising Eve that she could be like God. You too can be God. You know, you get out there in the the fringes of the charismatic movement, which the fringes are more normative today than they were 50 years ago, and you have the what is called the health and wealth gospel and the faith healing movement and the prosperity theology, and they say you are little gods and you can name it and you can create your own reality. See, they've denied the creator-creature uh, distinction in that whole prosperity uh, prosperity gospel they've bought into a purely pagan world world view of uh, of experience and actually it's existentialism married to the Bible in terms of some verbiage. Second, the pagan worldview suggests man can move up the scale to be a god, and that's exactly what uh, Satan attempted Eve with. You will be like God, so you can just level up and. Um, it, and the creator-creature distinction doesn't matter. And so when the woman saw, what's she doing? It depends. I'm going to make the decision as to what's right or wrong. I'm in authority over God. It's all about me. So just as Satan failed and unable to promote himself up to the level of God, um, so he enticed Eve and then Adam to do the same thing, to be like, try to be like God. So the third point in that section was that Satan tricked Eve into thinking she had the she was the ultimate authority over her life. She was an authority over God. She could determine if God's God's mandates, God's revelation was true or false. So where did that come from? Well, we studied that. It's all Satan. Satan's the source of the pagan worldview. Satan deceived Eve into thinking that she too could change. Um, who she was as a creature, and Satan planted that idea. Uh, but Eve and Adam freely chose. He did not make them. They freely chose. They, they exercised their um, responsible choice and did it irresponsibly. So choice one was to go to God, say, God, you know, this creature over here that you created says that you don't know what you're talking about and that we're not going to die if we eat the fruit and you say we're going to die um help us understand this so they didn't and so they decided to find things out for themselves now what does this look like today what does continuity of being look like in relation to evolution See, continuity of being, if you look at the, some of those uh, diagrams from ancient times, it, it's not too different from the, what we have today in the uh, scale of life and ev- evolution. And this all comes out of uh, what is considered to be science. So today we have people in our world, we ran into a lot of them during the COVID scare, 
And we have people who uh, would say that if you didn't agree with what they said, then you weren't following the science. One of the things you can always count on when you're dealing with people operating on propaganda and operating on uh, irrationality is they don't deal with facts and they just accuse people of certain things, trying to shame them and trying to intimidate them. This is a normative procedure for propaganda. And so they will seek to shame Christians uh, calling them names like you're just anti-science and you're science deniers. And so you'll see that with everything from climate change to evolution to uh, COVID and COVID, COVID squares. By the way, uh, just throwing something out there that I learned recently that you should be aware of because we don't get to talk to people who know what they're talking about very much that we can trust. But a very good friend of mine, um, when I met him, he was a vice president for Pfizer. And uh, he had worked, and I did not know this until we had a conversation about it, he had worked in research and development for Pfizer for a number of years. And his conclusion was that... Uh, uh, from based on his knowledge, is that the protocols and procedures of every drug company, every pharmaceutical company today, is not what it was 25 years ago. And that he wouldn't trust any of them. So that's just something that is helpful to know. Don't get sucked into things. We don't know what to believe and what not to believe. So it's very helpful sometimes to talk to people. Um, Parents, you need to teach your kids and your prep school students, for your Sunday school teachers, that that this way of just shaming people is just a debater's technique that is used to uh, put people on the defensive and to try to win an argument. It is based on emotion, making you feel bad. It's not based on an analysis of facts and uh, this is exactly what science is supposed to be. When we look at the question of what is science, it, the scientific method, which I learned, I think, in probably before ninth grade, I think it's taught somewhat earlier now, but I know I consciously came to understand it in physical science in the ninth grade, starts off with a hypothesis where you're saying, well, I wonder about something. And so you, then you think, I think that this causes that. And so then you have to test that hypothesis. You've come up with that. And so you test it in a couple of controlled environments, and it seems like it's right. So now that forms what's called a theory. So you've had a couple of experiments. But then you go and you have other people do it under other circumstances, and if it works itself out in those other circumstances, then you can reach a conclusion that this is something that is that always happens under certain given conditions. But it starts with a hypothesis, and when you're testing that hypothesis, you have to be able to repeat it. When it looks like you're right, then you have to be able to repeat it in different places, in different environments, if that's not a factor, and um, and so that it's repeatable, and you can you can see it, 
And if somebody questions it, you can say, okay, let's go in and let's do the experiment. And because other scientists in other laboratories around the world can repeat those same experiments and get the same results, you can reach a conclusion that the, your hypothesis is probably, uh, probably true. But guess what? That's not what evolution does. Let's look at an example. They give this in the, in the notes. This is a, in the 1600s, you had Galileo proposed a, a, that all objects fall to the ground, even though they might have different mass, they will all fall to the ground at the same rate. So he had uh, constructed a, a, um, uh, a platform and a uh, uh, angle a ramp there with balls of two different masses and release them at the same time and they hit the ground at the same time. That's science. You have a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis with an experiment and that uh, then is demonstrated. But when you get into um, evolution, we call it the theory of evolution. It's, it's really more of a hypothesis, I believe, but we'll give them a, the fact that it is a theory. And so it is a theory, but no one has ever observed it. There's not one place, there's not one laboratory that has ever observed evolution. Now, you have changes that occur within a species or within a kind, but you'd never, there's no one has ever observed a transition from one species to another. It's never happened. No one can test it or repeat it in a laboratory. It's never been done, never can be done. And if it were done, what's the problem? It's a controlled environment. In the theory of evolution, it happens with no controls. It's pure random chance that occurs. And, but if you do it in a laboratory, it's not pure random chance. So you've uh, tilted it. But guess what? You still can't do it. No one can test it or repeat it in a laboratory. Third, the use of scientific names only disguises the fact that it isn't science. Now, you know, when I go through this, sometimes with people, they, 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 they've never heard this. They're like, you, you can't be, you're, you're not right. You know, the sad thing is, I guess, I started learning this from a lot of top-notch scientists when I started studying the issue of creation and evolution, when I was in, in when I was 14 years old, I was blessed by the fact that as I was growing up at Camp Penile, that when you got done at 13 with as a cabin camper, uh, what they had was canoe trips. This is like back in 1965, 66, and the guy who ran the canoe trips was not only a his, high school history teacher, he was a high school biology teacher. And he, he taught, I mean, his curriculum that he taught uh, these 14, 15, 16-year-old kids that went on canoe trips was about creation and evolution and the biblical truth of creation. And he had me reading Gen uh, Genesis Flood by, Whit um, by Whitcomb and Morris, uh, Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. John Whitcomb did a great job teaching on this 
at this church in one of our first or second uh, uh, Chafer conferences. And he was uh, 90 years old at the time. But I wanted to have him here because a lot of these young guys and students and everything needed to needed to hear him. They needed to say, I heard John Whitcomb talk on this. And I had the privilege when I was uh, in my, at the end of my first year at Dallas Seminary, back in those days, the Institute for Creation Research would conduct uh, five-day seminars. Create, they called them Creation Science Institutes. And they would start at about 8.30 in the morning and go to 4 in the afternoon. And they, they held it at Dallas Bible College, which is no longer in existence. And on the front row, right under Henry Morris's, uh, just beyond his sneeze line, was Tommy Ice and Robbie Dean. Every single morning, all day long, with our big reel-to-reel tape recorder set there to record the whole thing. And so, to me, this is, this is normal, everyday information. I've known this since I was 14 years old, but I tell people this, and they, they don't want to believe it. But this is, this is solid. The use of scientific names only disguises the fact that it isn't science. Evolution does not follow the scientific method. I mean, Henry Morris would drill that into us again and again and again. I probably got the privilege of hearing Dr. Morris, who had a Ph.D. in um, hydroelectric engineering and had um, uh, just he wrote an amazing number of books. And his son had his Ph.D. in uh, geology, and I got to hear him several times as well. It all starts. It's not science because it doesn't follow the scientific methodology. It is a philosophy. It's a religion, but it is not science. Evolution claims that life differs only in degrees. It's just putting a scientific faith on the continuity of being. And the conclusion is that evolution is fake science. And so one of the great tools of cultural Marxism today is to accuse they're enemies of doing what they're doing. And you hear this all the time in politics. You hear it on the streets. And so it's all about shame and intimidation. So what's the impact of this continuity of being concept? How has that impacted uh, our culture? And it undergirds as a philosophy a number of different things. First of all, it had a major influence on both world wars, both World War One and World War Two. World War Two, the Nazis specifically built their philosophy on social Darwinism. Social Darwinism is the logical conclusion and application to society of the principles of Charles Darwin's evolution. But when they, the Nazis carried it to its logical conclusion, which was the Holocaust and the murder of six million Jews, the world couldn't handle that, that consequence, so they just said, it's not logical. No, it is logical. You just don't like it, so you can't just impose your, uh, your, your view on it and say it's, it's not white when it's clearly white. The legalization of abortion, it is directly argued for on the basis of Darwinian principles of evolution. 
the legalization of euthanasia. See, if human life is just a product of time and chance, then all you have is molecules and physical DNA. You do not have an immaterial soul and spirit. That is where modern psychology is today, is that everything is material, everything is determined by chemistry. Nothing. There's no such thing as a soul or a spirit. And so if man is not created in the image and likeness of God, then human life does not have value. And this is what I've taught this several times on the beginning of human life. And this was the ancient Jewish position that even though the immaterial soul and spirit was not transmitted and created and transmitted by God until birth, because what started in the womb was human uh, human physical life. And because it was human and not non-human, it had to be protected because that was part of what God designed for mankind. Remember, Jesus quotes from the Psalm 4, I think. I may be wrong on that. A body you have prepared for me. You know, there's a recognition. God didn't just say, well, well, let's throw some dirt out there and see what shape it takes, and we'll call that a man. He designed everything intentionally because he knew that in 4,000 years, he was going to incarnate himself into this body. So the body had to be the, the most perfect thing, body, that he could inhabit that would reveal him. Remember, John 14 says that, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten has revealed him. And he reveals him in a human body. So there's something important about that which is human, even if it isn't fully human yet, by receiving the the soul and and the spirit. So this was the ancient Jewish position that that even though the soul and spirit don't come until birth, that is human, and human is important and valued. So. And when it comes to euthanasia and assisted suicide, that's a major problem is, is you have to have life. It's human life, even though there's all kinds of problems, dementia and Alzheimer's, and, and I've had to deal with that quite a bit in my family. And so I know just exactly what you just hate to see people suffer. But God uses the suffering of people in your family to teach you to take care of them so that you can learn a lot of things you wouldn't learn otherwise, and it's not about you, it's about others. Um, genocides, mass killings in Germany with the Holocaust of the Jewish, uh, Jewish people. Armenia, Africa, Cambodia, Rwanda, Sudan, and many other places, uh, these mass killings are all generated by the, uh, an evolutionary Darwinistic framework. Eugenics, which is the medical practice of improving the human race by selecting people who had certain uh, traits. And if they had other undesirable traits, then you were going to sterilize them. And there were horrible sterilization things, uh, experiments on, uh, on black people and on a number of other unwanted, whether they had dwarfism or some of these other uh, characteristics. And so it was just human arrogance because this is just, people are just an accidental uh, result 
of an electrical discharge on a mass of protoplasm. So none of us have any real meaning or value over time. So all of that is the impact of continuity of being. So we see this distinction. We've seen the comparison and contrast in the top square between biblical worldview and pagan worldview. But in the biblical worldview, when we say, who am I? The answer is, I am a creature created in the image and likeness of God to serve God and to glorify him forever. That's who every single human being is. They're not just accidents. And in the pagan worldview, um, it's I am my own person. I am an accident. There's no higher authority than me. It's all about me. And I can do whatever it is I want to do. On the biblical worldview side, when you ask the question, what is truth or how do I know, uh, we look to the creator to tell us, and then we base knowledge on that framework. But in pagan worldview, truth is whatever we make it, however we shape it. It's up to us. We generate our own law. We do whatever is right in our own eyes. In the biblical worldview, the purpose of life is that God defines what I do, and God gives the rules. He gives the rules because he designed us to be a certain way, and so the rules are to keep us in bounds so that we don't destroy ourselves. He knows exactly how he made us, and when he tells us, you know, don't do this, don't do that, he knows that he designed us in a way that by doing those things, it's self-destructive. So in the purpose of life, and for the pagan, it's we do what's right in our own eyes. It's all random, it's all chance, what's right today may be wrong tomorrow. We start with the creator-creature distinction, that God is wholly separate from the universe he made. Now when you go back and you're teaching something like in the previous chart, I wanted to say this to kids, this is really important to teach kids from the time they're young that they're special. In God's eyes, that God created them in his image and likeness. And even though there may be, um, there may be flaws in them, maybe they're this way or that way, or there's a birth defect, whatever, God designed them the way they are for a purpose. And when you look at, um, some of the things that have happened to people's lives, I can't tell you how many of the greatest hymn writers we've had in Christian history were people who had horrible uh, physical difficulties. You know, we think of Fanny Crosby, who was blind uh, probably from, from birth, and, um, and she wrote over 5,000 hymns. She, she, was a, she wasn't saved until she was in her late 30s, and she had been a poet she even had her poetry read or read her poetry at, at the White House. And when she was in her late 30s, she became a believer. And when she was in her early 40s, a musician, Christian musician friend of hers told her that she should start writing words for hymns. And between her early 40s and I think she lived to be early 90s, she wrote over 5,000. Now, not all of them are, were great. We don't sing all of them. We sing maybe about um, 50 or maybe 100 at the most. But guess what? You, you've got to try and fail a lot of times before you have hit excellence. And you just keep working at it. And some of those hymns of hers just are, are sung 
today in, and best loved hymns in, in America. So you have to understand that no matter what your flaws or failures may be, what, whatever your features may be where you're not satisfied, that God made you the way you are. And to uh, and you need to teach that to your kids. It helps them understand that they have a value and a purpose, and that when things get rough and life is is t- difficult and hard, and uh, maybe they come back from combat with lo- losing limbs, and you they're depressed and discouraged. What gets them through that is the truth of the Word of God that God has a plan and a purpose, and even though you may be maimed, even though you may be suffering. And uh, God can use that for his glory, and that's what, why he has allowed that. So we have this creator-creature distinction. God's wholly separate from the universe he made. Second, he's the creator of all things. Third, all things came into existence, not because God transformed part of himself into things, but that we weren't made from God parts but he created something out of nothing just by the power of his spoken word. And fourth, that the Bible teaches that there is a clear boundary between human beings, animals, plants, and God, and each procreates according to their own kinds. One will not morph into the other. A rock will never be an animal. An animal will never become a man. A man will never become a god. Look at what Scripture says. In Genesis 1:11, Then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation. Every seed, so it just, it's there. He speaks it into existence. Every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit, these seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. That's the New Living Translation. Uh, But the New King James is uh, closer to the original according to its kind, whose seed is in itself. Now, I said this before. I'm going to make another comment on this on the translation. Using something like a... Let me back up a minute. When you translate, you can try to translate as close to a literal translation as possible. But if you translate it hyper-literally it often will not make sense when you bring it over into the target language. So all translation to some degree is what they call a dynamic equivalence. The closer it is to the original, it's called formal equivalence. And when you get out on the fringe, you get things like a paraphrase. A paraphrase is at the end. A paraphrase is not looking at the original the paraphrase is looking, for example, um, what was his name? Kenneth, I can't think of his last name now, who did the Living Bible. The Living Bible is not the same as the Living Translation. Uh, Kenneth Taylor. Kenneth Taylor was trying to, all he had was King James Bible. He wants to make it understandable to his kids, so he was trying to take the King James verbiage and just put it into uh, kids' language so they could understand it. So he called it the Living Bible, and first he had the Living Epistles, then he had Living Acts, and finally he had done the whole New Testament, and it was the Living New Testament, and he did the whole Bible. 
But, you know, his theology just rips through the whole thing in many ways. His paraphrase is very nuanced to his theology. It may not actually reflect what the original Greek or Hebrew does. That's what happens. You get more of the translator's theology the further you get into formal, I mean, into dynamic equivalence. Uh, Wayne House often refers to... Um, often refers to the NIV as the New International Commentary. It's not a translation. It, it, you, and and my, one of my verses I like to use for this is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 where it's talking about fleshly people. Now, we know that fleshly, flesh, is often used to describe the sin nature and that s- sinful people are fleshly, sarkikos, in that passage from sarks, meaning flesh. The NIV translates it worldly, but worldly is the concept of cosmos, something totally different. But that's this the translator theory. So what I did when I looked at this, New Living Translation, because that's what uh, the quarks use, uh, it's really good, I think, for the most part. I'll always say for the most part in most translations. I'll disagree here or there. But Alan Ross, who's one of my professors in Hebrew, was the main translator of Genesis. He wrote a commentary on Genesis. And, uh, you know, it doesn't get, I, I really trust Alan Ross. He does a great job. But then I was reading some of the stuff that the Quaks were using verses for, from um, Romans and Ephesians and some of their sanctification stuff. And I went, I wonder who translated that. And I, so I went to the beginning of the, um, uh, of the New Living Translation, and it lists who the translators were for every, every book. And I know these guys. I either know them by reputation or I know them personally. And they're all lordship. They're all extremely reformed. And so that comes through in how they translated uh, passages in Romans 8 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians, and it's more theologically nuanced than, than the NIV. It's terrible. And so we talked about that uh, a little bit this morning, and they, were, you know, they, they are not adver- averse to uh, fixing translations, so we'll be working on that. But it's just a, it's just a word of warning there. So uh, that's why I put the New King James here. I think that for a kid, um, using the fact that the seeds will then produce this, I would put the same kinds of plants and trees from which they came. I would have added that word. Uh, but the, ta- the original Hebrew is closer to according to its kind, whose seed is in itself. So the Bible is said that all these kinds, now a kind is not the same as a species, a kind is broader. It's somewhere around family or if in modern scientific taxonomy uh, are a little bit lower than that, but it's not quite equivalent to any of our modern taxonomic terms uh, for, for plants and animals. But it's much broader. The biblical kind is much broader than, um, than, a, than species. Genesis one twenty one, you have the create God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. See, there, there's no transmission of species. There's no jumping the line up or down uh, the continuity of being. 
Uh, again, the New King James translates it according to their kind, according to their kind. Genesis 1.24 uh, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. Horses produce horses. You know, sometimes there have been these experiments, and so you'll have the, uh, they'll tell you about, oh, there's a place in England that during the in early industrial period, because there was a lot of smog, the trees were blackened by soot, and so there was a predominance of black moths instead of white moths. And then uh, later when they cleaned up the air, then the the trees, which had a lighter bark, um, the moths would uh, show up better. Uh, and so the the um, uh, white moths survived and the dark moths were eaten. But they're still moths. You never saw any change from one thing to another. They were still moths, but the environment determined that a black moth was camouflaged against the soot and crud on a on a tree. And so the birds wouldn't eat it. The birds would see the white, though. They would stand out against the black background, and they would eat the white moths. And then when they cleaned it up, well, now the black moths stand out against the lighter bark of the trees. And so they would get eaten, but the lighter uh, moths uh, would be more uh, camouflaged, so they wouldn't be eaten. But the moth is still a moth. You know, they do these different things with fruit flies, but at the end, a fruit fly is a fruit fly. It may be a little larger, a little smaller. It may have four rings or wings or six wings, but it's still a fruit fly. So they're not jumping barriers. Uh, Genesis 1.27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and they propagate according to their own. Now, when you come to... Um, the end of this is lesson two, then there are these boxed areas within the site. So that what we've just gone through is the first boxed area, and the next slide comes from the second boxed area, which is on the top of page 10 uh, in those notes, and are, are about halfway down, and it's on impersonal fate or chance. And in impersonal fate, what you have is someone who something that is non-personal, non-personal, and it is just uh, random with with what happens, and so it is not a person who has intelligence and will. You'll often hear people talk about luck. There's no such thing as luck in the Bible or in Christianity. That, that God, you read the Proverbs, God, every toss of the lot is overseen by God. Karma. Karma is this idea. I saw a poll yesterday. I should have grabbed it. Um, poll yesterday that was talking about, um, how, uh, you know, the belief in God in America. And you have like 70% of people still believe in a personal God. But you go down the study, 50% of them still believe, still believe in karma. See, they're, they're just cobbling things together from different worldviews. Uh, you'll hear people say, well, the universe just doesn't want me to do that. Well, does the universe think? Does it have will? Does it have volition? What do you mean the universe? You know, you, you personalize something that is impersonal. How do you, how can, what justifies that? You know, just ask those questions. A positive energy. 
you know, electricity comes positive and negative, but, but you know, this, this idea of positive or negative, you, where do you see that in the Bible anywhere? It's either right or wrong. It's either godly or ungodly. It's, evil, e- it's either evil or it is righteous. You don't have this idea of uh, positive or negative. Horoscope. You know, people look at their horoscope, and you know th- these things wouldn't gain traction if they didn't have a higher degree of accidental or coincidental results. And so people people read what they and they'll believe what they see, and they'll ignore. They just it's like they don't even read the stuff that doesn't fit, and and so they think it has something. And then there's the force. Back in the 80s, after a woman named Constance Cumbie, who was a lawyer and researcher, wrote a book called The New Age Movement, came out about 1982, and it was the first Christian book to really expose the, the New Age Movement. And, um, and then there were a number of books that, that followed that. And, of course, the Star Wars uh, first three had come out in, the, um, in that period of time, and you had uh, George Lucas come up with this idea of the force. May the force be with you. And I, and I used to do seminars where I'd go into churches and I'd teach on the New Age movement back in the, back in the late 80s. And I, would crit- and I would critique the force, and people didn't want to believe it. And then sometime in the early 90s, I accidentally, in God's plan, turned on PBS one night, and they were interviewing George Lucas. He's the one who produced the, the initial Star Wars film. And they said, what, what was your, where'd you get the idea of the Force? What was your inspiration for that? He said, I modeled that after Buddhism and Shintoism in Japan. He was promoting a totally religious concept. And um, you get to a scene, and I think it's the second one that the, uh, uh, the Empire Strikes Back, and that's when you were introduced to Little Yoda. And Yoda is training Luke in, um, to fight with his lightsaber. And so he goes out into this foggy, misty, swampy jungle. And all of a sudden, Darth Vader shows up. And you hear the deep breathing and everything. And so they have their little battle. And he cuts Darth Vader's head off. And it falls to the ground, rolls to Luke's feet. Luke bends over and he pulls up the visor and he sees himself. You know, that is, mon- that is monism. Monism is a philosophical position in Eastern religion that all things are one. And the Beatles wrote a song called I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. Pure, it was after they ran into... Uh, uh, the Maharashi Mahesh Yogi and got into Eastern mysticism. And it was pure monism. And that's what you're seeing visualized right there in, in the second Star Wars film. So all of this is permeating our culture in very clever ways. And people just buy, buy into it in all these ways. So God's word, the Bible tells us that God is a person. He's capable of thought reason, relationships, and choices. The universe isn't. God controls everything ultimately. He has permissive will so that he allows a measure of of choice and freedom, but he also chooses to give human beings and angels limited choices. 
In 1 Corinthians 29, 11, we read, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. He is ultimately the authority and in control. In Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, we read, Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Ultimate authority, is it the self? No. Proverbs 19.21 says, You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Proverbs 14.12, 16.25, There's a path before each person that seems right. But it ends in death. That verse is identical in two places. That's very important. There is a way that seems right to us, but the end is death. Satan's the arch deceiver, and he is always seeking to deceive us. This is what we see in Job 1, 6, and 7. One day the heavenly court of the angels comes to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, is with them. This is in the throne room of God. Where have you come from, God says to Satan. Satan said, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. First Peter 5, 8, Peter says it's still going on. He warns us, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So next time, what we're going to do is we're going to get into the third lesson. That took up our time tonight just to finish that. When I was talking to the Quacks, they said the thing about going through the first 12 chapters of the lessons for the first 12 chapters of Genesis is there's so much that's important there because this is the foundation for everything else in the Bible that it's hard to keep to just two hours for one lesson. It needs thought. It needs a lot of, a lot of, a lot of understanding. And we need to be teaching this to our kids. We're in a battle. If you are a Christian grandparent, parent, and you have kids, then your kids are the are on the front lines of the cultural battle in Western civilization. And you are the training officer so that they can survive against the enemy. And that's got to be the mindset of every parent uh, because uh, what has happened in the last 50 years to education is destroying this nation and it's destroying Western civilization. And uh, whether, whether the United States survives, whether Western civilization in some form or another survives or not, we need to make sure that our children and our grandchildren can handle whatever comes their way because you're only going to have them as a parent for about 18 years. And the training that is most significant is what happens in the first eight or nine. After that, they're going to grow up really fast and want to make their own decisions.
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, reflect upon your word, and to understand reality as it is, as you have created it. And, Father, we live in a world that wants to redefine it. They want to destroy the creator-creature distinction, get rid of that top level, and and make ourselves gods and determine everything. And 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 it is so irrational and unrealistic and, and just uh, neurotic and psychotic. And, Father, we know the truth. And the truth enables us to understand what is actually going on. And um, we only know that and learn that from your word. And only on the, the basis of reality and re- real true information can we make wise and good decisions. So, Father, we pray for the parents that are here, the grandparents, the ones who are listening, that they will learn that we're in a battle, and every day we have to um, take um, take the strongholds of thinking. We have to um, do what the Scripture says, that we are to take captive every thought for Jesus Christ. And uh, that is not an easy task. So, Father, give us the strength and the desire and the wisdom to do it. In Christ's name, amen.